When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our great friends at MyBookie. We may be in the final weeks of the college football season, but it's not done yet. So make sure to go to MyBookie.ag, sign up for a brand new account using our promo code UGA. Do this while you still can, and you get a 50% bonus on that first deposit. Still have some of the biggest bowl games left to bet on this season. And there's no better place to do that than at my bookie. But all right, guys, I am your host, Tyler. And to be perfectly honest with you guys, I was not planning on doing this episode today. It is the day after Christmas, and I was planning on just kind of chilling out today, putting my feet up, watching some of the bowl games. Not great bowl games, but bowl games. It's cost ball nonetheless. We got to appreciate it while we still got it. So after all the holiday fun, all the festivities, all the traveling, all the family time, which we love, right? We love, but it can be exhausting. You know what I'm talking about. This was going to be my day off. I was just going to chill out today, and I get right back at it tomorrow and record the Orange Bowl preview episode. That was the plan, but I had a change of heart. I've had a couple questions sitting in my DMs, sitting in my inbox over the past week or so that I haven't had a chance to get to because it's been the holidays, been traveling, doing family stuff, Christmas stuff. And you know, we record a lot of episodes during the year. So I was like, you know what? It's okay. I don't get to every single question. I do my best. I I can just let these go. It's all right. But you see, guys, I have this thing called a guilty conscience. And I tell you all the time, I am so sincerely grateful for all of the support that you guys give this podcast, all you guys do to help us out, listen to the show, spread the word, all of those things. So I always feel like I have this like sense of responsibility and duty to answer as many questions as I possibly can. And if I have questions sitting there in my inbox, in my DMs, and especially questions that are pretty topical, you kind of have to get to them now, or it just won't make sense to do them on a mailbag episode like two weeks from now. Some questions, they can be used almost anytime. You can kind of just sit them there in the hopper, put them on the back burner, and then bring them up when you have time to, to discuss them. But there's also some questions that, by the nature of the beast, it doesn't make sense to push them back. If you don't talk about them now, you're just never going to talk about them. And then if I don't talk about them now, then I'm big time in you and making it seem like your question doesn't matter. So that's what goes on in my head. 
you guys probably think that's insane because, I mean, let's be real, it probably is. But as we often say, we do this show for the people. And when the people have questions, it is our duty to come on here and answer those questions. So that is exactly what I'm here to do today. I fired the mic up. There's not a ton of questions. There's only a couple here. But again, if I don't get to these now, I just don't think it really makes sense to talk about them in like two or three weeks when we might run another mailbag. So this might not be the longest episode of the Glory UJ podcast in history, but it's an episode nonetheless, and I want to get to these questions. So without any further ado, let's go ahead. Let's just get to these questions. And I've got one from Wit, who has been a friend of the podcast for a long time. If you guys don't know this, Wit and his friends have a great podcast, Rowdy Southern Pod. It's all things really, really SEC, bigger picture college football stuff. So if you're looking for something along those lines, I definitely recommend you guys give them a shot. They do a great job. But Wit asks, out of the transfers that we have landed, which one do you think will have the biggest impact next season? And of all the questions, this is probably the one that I maybe could have moved back to another episode a couple of weeks from now, but I'm going to talk about it now because this is when it's fresh in everyone's mind. We, you know, we've just recently landed Trevor Etienne, Colby Young. We've had London Humphreys for a while, Xavier McLeod. This has all happened recently, and the further we get away from it, the less relevant, I guess, it becomes. So let's dive into it. And what I'm going to do here with, is I'm actually going to go through each one of these players. I got a lot of questions about these transfer guys, and which just is the question that I, that I pulled out that kind of encompassed all of them. So I'm going to share some brief thoughts on each one of these players, and I'm going to rank them for you from the guy that I expect to have maybe have the least impact next year to the guy I believe is going to have the biggest impact for us next year. I want to start at the bottom with Xavier McLeod. Now, I am not putting McLeod at the bottom saying that I think he's he's the least talented player among this group. That's not what I'm suggesting. Which question is specifically asking who I think is going to have the biggest impact next season. If I'm ranking them with that as the criteria, I would put McLeod at the bottom. Now, McLeod is a really talented player. Here's the thing with McLeod, guys. I believe he's a really talented football player. He's a physically gifted guy. But there is very little tape to evaluate at the college level. I mean, he didn't play all that much for South Carolina this year. He was dismissed from the team. There were certainly some issues there between him and the South Carolina coaching staff that he has been very open about and actually had some pointed words for the South Carolina coaching staff. And if you're wondering, like, what went on behind the scenes? Are we taking, like, a a character issue kind of guy? I think those are fair questions. And to be quite honest with you, those are some questions that I had initially when I saw him at the portal when word came out that we were actually like pursuing this guy. But based on my understanding, the word that I have gotten is that the issue between McLeod and the South Carolina coaching staff really stemmed from what happened once he got to Columbia. Shortly after he signed and and came to Columbia, the coach that was most responsible for recruiting him to Carolina packed up and left. Their defensive line coach was a guy by the name of Jimmy Lindsay. He packed up and left and went to LSU to take the defense line coach there for the Tigers back in April. And that was McLeod's number. That was his guy, right? And now you can say, well, you shouldn't commit to a, a school and to a program because of one coach. And I agree with that. I do not disagree with that. But we also have to understand these are 17, 18-year-old kids. And oftentimes they do commit to a school based on largely one coach. Think about Fran Brown, guys, right? Why did we hire Fran Brown? We hired him because of his connections up in the Northeast. And a lot of those guys that we got from the Northeast, Fran Brown was their guy. If it wasn't for him, they were not coming to Georgia. And look at a number of those guys already leaving our program. And where did they go? Oh, yeah, Syracuse with Fran Brown. So I think that was the beginning of all the issues with McLeod at South Carolina. 
And then he felt like the defensive line coach wasn't doing a good job developing him, and there's just some tension there, and then it bled over into the, the rest of the coaching staff with Shane Beamer, and it just got toxic. It was just bad. And I'm, I'm not suggesting the guy is blameless. I'm not suggesting that at all. There's plenty of blame to go around probably on all sides there. But I do trust Kirby Smart. I do trust that he did his due diligence, did his homework on this. And one thing that does give me some confidence here is that we did have a previous relationship with this young man. We were a close number two in his recruitment initially. And he ends up going to the home state school, goes to South Carolina, makes sense. You know, it's okay, live to fight another day. But we have that built-in relationship. We know this kid on a deeper level. This was some kid that we did not know. And you're just relying on someone else's take on what's going on, word of mouth, those kind of things. You're taking his word for it, talking to other coaches. That's when it becomes dangerous. But when you know this kid, and beyond that, you know his family. All I would say is that our coaching staff, Kirby Smart and Company, have far more information to operate off of when making this decision than any of us do. And as important as our culture is to Kirby Smart and what he has built in Athens, I want to believe, until he gives me reason otherwise, that he's not going to bring in a guy that would put that culture at jeopardy. And to be honest with you guys, a lot of times our culture, what we have, the leadership that we have in place, can have a positive impact on fringe guys like that. If, he, if indeed he is a fringe guy, I don't know that. Don't know the kid. But there's that as well. So just put that out there. I know there are some questions. I've had quite a few questions about the, the character aspect of Xavier McLeod. And I, I can't give you a definitive answer. I don't really know. All I can tell you is I do trust Kirby Smart. I can tell you what I've heard was behind the issues at South Carolina and where it all started and, and how it got to the point it got to. But that's where we are with that stuff. But back to my point. I don't even know how I got to that. But back to my original point. There's not a ton of freshman college tape to evaluate when you're when you're talking about Xavier McLeod. So what do you turn to? We turn to the high school tape, right? Well, I watched this guy's tape going back to the 2023 recruiting class because we were recruiting him heavily. I thought we had a shot at him, and I was, hey, let's let's get this guy. I like this guy. But the issue with his high school tape, it's one of those situations where he is playing a level of football where he, as a defensive lineman, a, a power five SEC caliber defensive lineman, is just so much physically bigger and stronger and more athletic than everyone he's playing against in the trenches at the high school level that it's really hard to evaluate how dominant he is like how is that going to translate to the SEC how's it going to translate next year for us because guys I'm talking about he's going against those linemen who are I mean like 210 pounds maybe and he's just throwing them around like rag dolls man and half the time He's playing a level of football where they're not even blocking him. Like It's that level of incompetence where they just don't block the guy. So he's running entirely unencumbered to the backfield and just envelops ball carriers. So it's hard to sit here and say, oh yeah, he's going to be that level dominant at the next level because he's going to be going against, I mean, guys, it's a different universe in terms of the level of talent and ability he'll be going against in the SEC. I mean, it's not even, it's not even a solar system. Like it's a different solar system, guys. I don't even know how to describe it. It's crazy the gap between what he was playing in high school and what he's going to be doing next year for us if he wants to make an impact. So in those kind of situations, when that's the tape that you largely have to work off of and trying to evaluate him, what I lean on more than anything is his just overall athleticism. How does he move? How does he bend? Does he play with good pad level? Those kinds of things. And I can tell you when evaluating him from that standpoint, I think he's got big time potential. That's what I feel comfortable saying, big time potential. I do think his pad level could use some work. I think sometimes he has a habit, at least he did in high school, of standing up 
too high, getting out of his stance, and just kind of showing his, his chest to the offensive lineman. Now, I, now the question becomes, how much of that is just him getting into some lazy habits because he was just so much bigger and stronger than everyone he played against. They didn't have to play with great technique. And how much of that is just like maybe he struggles to bend. And that's kind of a natural thing for him to kind of stand up like that. You got to get that out of him. I don't know the answer to that. But I do know he has borderline elite first step quickness, very good first step quickness. He's a three tech all the way, in my opinion. I think he could probably add a little bit of weight. I think he add 10-ish pounds and be in really good shape to contribute for us next year. And I do think he'll probably contribute to some degree for us because we just have a need for that right now. But when you're talking about a guy who got dismissed from his previous school about halfway through his freshman season and spent the back half of the season just like not even practicing, not really doing anything, I guess maybe working out, his development clearly got stunted. This is a guy that needed some technical development coming into college. He's going to get that at Georgia. That's a big reason if you hear the guy talk and like do interviews and explain what his decision on why to come to Georgia and why he left South Carolina. That's what this guy's focusing on. He's like, I'm going to come to Georgia where not only am I going to win, but I'm going to get developed. They're going to they're gonna send me to the NFL, man. Trey Scott's going to do work with me. Even the kid himself understands that he needs development right now. The raw tools are there. I do believe that. I'm very high on his potential. I just don't know how reasonable it is to expect him to come in right away and be that instant impact difference-making player at the three-tech that we've had with guys like Devontae Hawaii and Jalen Carter in years past. I don't think that's really in the cards. Now, I would love to be pleasantly surprised. Again, I do believe the physical ability is there. I just don't know if the development is there at, the, at this point right now to where we can expect him to come in and be that just dominant force on the interior that we did not have last year. Now, I do think he's going to be on the depth chart. I do think he'll be in the rotation and get some snaps, but I just don't expect him to be that difference maker in his first year in Athens. Now, give him a year or two, yeah, I think he can grow into that. I think he has that potential. I just don't know if he's there in 2024. That's that's my only concern there. And that's why I have him at number four. It's not a long-term thing with him. It's just, if you're asking me for next year, I think I'd put him at the bottom of my list. All right, up next, I'm going to go with London Humphreys in the three spot here. So I'm really high on this guy. You guys have heard me talk about him before. He's 6'3", about 200-ish pounds, and has really, really good speed. I know I mentioned a couple times, I know you probably haven't watched a ton of Vanderbilt football. You did watch us play them, I'm sure, and you remember that first touchdown they had in that game? That was London Humphreys, who not only caught that pass, yes, it was a blown coverage, he was wide open, but he was able to then split our defense and pull away from the guys in our secondary and we have some pretty good players right some future NFL guys this guy can fly he can move man and I've had a lot of people ask me like does he compare like to Lad McConkey and I, I get why you would say that I mean we, we all know why it's the elf in the room yes they're, they're both white receivers right you don't see that a ton in the SEC they're both white receivers and I, and I get why you might want to compare them very different players though we know that Lad, as great as he is doesn't have the greatest size that's not an issue for Humphreys. Humphreys is, again, he's a big target, guys. He's 6'3". And I would also put forth that I believe that Humphreys, based on what I've seen, now I've certainly not watched him as much as I've watched Lab, but in the little bit I have seen of Humphreys, I believe he has better straight line, like home run speed than Lab McConkey does. Not to say Lab McConkey is slow. He is certainly not slow. But I think Humphreys has a little bit of an extra gear that maybe Lad doesn't have. However, Lad right now is far more of a technician. He's a far better route runner. He's far more elusive in space, much more dangerous with the ball in his hands after the catch if you're talking about trying to make somebody miss and not just running a straight line. And maybe Humphreys can do some of those things. I just haven't really seen him do those things. I'm not saying he can't. I'm just saying if I'm evaluating the guy on what I've seen, I haven't seen him do it. So yeah, I get why 
I get the questions about maybe comparisons between Ladd and, and Humphreys, but I think they're two very different receivers. But the reason I have him ahead of McLeod in the three spot is really a couple of things. Number one, I think he is going to have more opportunities, and I don't think he needs as much development as McLeod does. And also, guys, you know about the defensive line? If you're not ready from a technical standpoint, it's tough, man. It's tough to go in there and compete in the SEC against the grown freaking men that are going to be lining up across from him game in and game out. There's just a level of physical development that you need to be able to really be an impact player in the trenches. And again, with him missing roughly half the year at South Carolina his freshman year, I don't know if he's going to be physically ready to be that guy next year. Whereas with a guy like Humphreys, a receiver, yeah, there's a physical component to it, but not to the level that you see in the trenches in the SEC. So that's certainly part of it. And I think he's just more technically sound at what he does right now. Now, he certainly has some where he can grow and develop there, but he's just better in that regard from what I've seen than McLeod is. I also think there's going to be more opportunities. If you look at our receiver room next year, guys, now this is an incomplete list. We don't know for sure what Ladd is going to do. I, I would say Ladd is in a, right now still I lean towards him declaring for the NFL draft. He hasn't done that yet, so there's always a chance, right? There's always hope. I still lean towards him leaving. Dominic Lovett, Robert Thomas will both be back next year. And you got Dylan Bell, who really came on late in the season. I think he's going to be an impact player for us at receiver next year. We'll see what Arian Smith does. He did walk during senior day, and he technically just go off into the great blue yonder or enter the transfer portal. There's no time for that. We'll see what happens there. But who is coming back at receiver that we know is going to be part of the rotation? Like We know that Dylan Bell is going to be part of the rotation. We know that Dominic Love will be part of the rotation. We know that Ra Ra Thomas is going to be part of the rotation. After that, what do we know? I mean, C.J. Smith did some nice things early in the year, and I would like to think with another year of development, he could certainly break out next year. I think that's that's certainly a possibility. I'm so high on what he can bring us. Arian's status is still very unclear at this moment. Denylon Morissette's about to hit the portal if he hasn't already, depending on when you're listening to this. Yazid Haynes is gone. Jackson Meeks is gone. I'm really high on Anthony Evans. I know our coaching staff is too. I think that guy could be a, a big time breakout player for us next year. You guys saw what he could do in that punt return in the SEC Championship game. The dude can play, man. I mean, he is he is a speed merchant. That guy can freaking fly. It was just a matter of him developing. There's some guys ahead of him. We'll see if he can get in the rotation next year. But we don't know that. I would like to believe a guy with that much talent ability could certainly be an impact player for us next year. But we don't know that yet. Really, the, the knowns right now are three guys, in my opinion. We know Dylan Bell. Dominic Lovett and Robert Thomas are in that rotation. So there's going to be competition to be like, I don't know, if, I don't expect Humphreys to be a starter. I really don't. But I do expect him to be in the two deep and be a, a guy that gets a lot of snaps for us at that receiver position. Certainly more so than I expect to see McLeod get snaps in our defensive line rotation. So that's why I have him at number three. Coming at number two is the other receiver that we have landed at this point, a guy by the name of Kobe Young from Miami. I don't really know how much Miami football you watch this year, guys, but Kobe Young can play. Now, here's what Kobe Young gives us. Kobe Young gives us size that we simply do not have currently on our roster. And that's a big reason why I have him ahead of Humphreys. I believe that Kobe Young has the potential to be a bona fide, legit number one X receiver for us. I believe he has that potential. Ra Thomas, I think, can be that guy too. But again, Kobe Young gives us something that quite literally no one else on the roster at the receiver position gives us right now. I mean, the guy is 6'5", 215. The closest 
comp I can give you in terms of like former Georgia players is Lawrence Cage. Right? A couple people say, well, what about Javon Wims? Javon Wims had a similar playing style in terms of his ability to go up and win those contested balls, those 50-50 balls, bigger body guy. But Javon was only 6'2". Colby Young is 6'5". That's Lawrence Cager-esque stuff, guys. And again, I don't know how much you've watched of Miami football the past two years. I watched a lot of football. I know you guys probably watched playing Miami. You've seen this guy play. But this guy, yes, his greatest dream, I think, is the ability to go up and win those contested balls, those 50-50 balls, the body control, all that kind of stuff. Yes, all that stuff is, is awesome, elite. But he's got way more to his game than just that. I mean, they would legitimately use this guy in the screen game at 6-5. He can do things with the ball in his hands after the catch, and you don't typically say that about guys that are 6'5", 215 pounds. You didn't really say about Lawrence Cager, really good player for us, but that's not really what Cager did. That wasn't what made him an effective player for us. I believe that Kobe Young can do pretty much all the things that Lawrence Cager did for us back in 2019, but also give us more. I think he's a better overall athlete, in my opinion, my humble opinion. Now, I know, as some people have pointed out, the numbers don't scream alpha number one caliber X receiver. Because last year, what, 47 catches for 563, five touchdowns in 2022, 32 catches, 376, five touchdowns. And yeah, I know those numbers, they're better than pedestrian, but they're not elite numbers. But you have to consider the context, guys, the 2022 Miami offense was an abject disaster. They went and fired Josh Gaddis after one year, got that guy out of town, brought in a new coordinator in 2023, and things got better. But both of these seasons, Tyler Van Dyke, who was amazing to end the 2021 season, just didn't have it in either 2022 or 23. There were certain games where he was good, but he was highly, highly inconsistent to the point they benched him this year for a true freshman by the name of Emory Williams, who could not complete a forward pass at times, guys. With Williams especially, but even with Van Dyke at times, Van Dyke was banged up for most of this year, as he was banged up some in 22 as well. They had a hard time throwing outside the numbers. They really relied on throwing inside the numbers. That's why a guy named Xavier Restrepo, who's their slot receiver, he was their leading receiver. They had like 900 yards receiving this year because he's the guy that was operating in the middle of the field and that's where they felt most comfortable. They didn't really throw outside the hashes very often last year or certainly not as much as they did between the hashes. But if you consider the context of the quarterback issues they had each of the last two years, but especially this year, the fact this guy put up almost 50 catches and over 550 yards, five touchdowns with the quarterback issues that they dealt with at Miami this year, I'll take that all day, man. I mean, you put him in our offense last year, he's a thousand yard guy. If you consider the context of what we have with Carson Beck and what he had to work with at Miami last year, he is a big time player, guys. I'm telling you, this guy can come in right away and be our starting X receiver and be one of the better guys we've had that position in a while. I think that highly of him. Now, Will he do that? That's where I can't guarantee that, right? I can't guarantee you that because I don't know how he's going to adjust to a new system with new teammates, new quarterback. I mean, we saw Rara Thomas this year had a tough time early in the year adjusting to running our office. Now, I don't think there's as big of a gap between what Miami was doing and what we do offensively as there was between what Rara Thomas was doing at Mississippi State under Mike Leach and that air raid system and what we asked him to do. There was a, certainly a bigger learning curve for Rara Thomas, but it took Rara some time. Now, once he figured it out, he got better and better and better and better with each passing game, really, until he got injured late in the season. But you just never really know how that transition is going to be made. You don't really know. So that's, that is my pause. And that's why I'm not going to sit here and guarantee you that he's going to be that guy. But I will tell you, 
then I strongly believe he has that potential if he can just make the transition and things start to click for him. And bottom line is, I just think he's further along than London Humphreys right now. And again, he's a bigger guy, gives us something that London doesn't give us. And London's a big body, 6'3", but he's not 6'5". He doesn't have that catch radius that you see with a guy like Colby Young. So I've got him coming in number two. And then finally, you might've guessed it by now, the number one player on my impact transfer portal list right now is running back Trevor Etienne from the University of Florida. And dear God, man, could a fan base be whining more about losing a guy in the transfer portal? I mean, it's out of control, guys. I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't do some of that. I mean, every fan base does it to a degree, but the links they've gone to and just some of the vile things I'm seeing from the Florida fan base on social media and message boards, it's a little out of control. But those of you who have been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I have made no secret of my respect for Trevor Etienne. Even going back to, I mean, last year, going back to the Scott in the Enemy episode this summer when I told you guys that Ford might not be very good, but they have two studs at running back, and I think Trevor Etienne is the better of the two. I told you guys I thought he was the best player on their offense in the summer than when we did our Georgia-Florida game preview episode in the middle of this season. Once again, I told you, Trevor Etienne is one of the better players in this offense. The guy's a stud. And that has been a constant in my analysis of this guy. Go back and check the tape. So this is not a situation. This is what I'm telling you. This is not a situation where I spent the past two years trashing this guy because he's a Florida player. And now that he's transferred to Georgia, all of a sudden I'm saying, oh, he's the greatest player that we've ever seen in the history of my life. No, that's not what's happening here. I have been very consistent saying this guy is a big time elite running back. And I could not be more excited to have this guy on our team, guys. I believe he's going to give us a level of explosiveness that we have not had at the running back position since the days of DeAndre Swift. Lost in the ecstasy of winning back-to-back national titles and going three straight regular seasons without losing a game, setting an SEC record for consecutive wins, lost in all of that was the reality that we had lost a little something in our backfield in terms of home run hitting ability. We've had good players. Kendall was great for us this year. Dajan's been the model of consistency and been such a good player for us. Kenny McIntosh was awesome for us last year, especially as a receiver out of the backfield. But that's where he got most of his explosive plays, right? That's that's how he generated most of his explosive plays was as a receiver. We haven't had that DeAndre Swift guy where you just hand the ball to him on any given snap, he can take it the distance. We haven't had a guy like that since Swift in 2019. We had it with Nick Chubb. We had it with Sonny Michelle. We had it with Swift. We had it with Nick Chubb. We had it with Sonny Michelle. We had it, heck, with Todd Gurley. We had it with Keith Marshall for about, I don't know, man, like seven or eight years. It seemed like we always had a guy that was a threat to break it off and go the distance on any single snap. And I haven't felt that way since Swift in 2019. I guess James Cook was the closest to that, but as good as James was for us, and he he did hit some big plays for us. He did break off some chunk plays. He didn't do it as at near the rate of DeAndre Swift and Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle and Todd Gurley. He just didn't do it like they did. And Zeus was great, but he wasn't that home run guy. Kenny Mack was great, but he wasn't the home run guy carrying the ball in the backfield. In the past game, yes, and he did have some big runs, but not the rate, again, of guys like Swift and Chubb and Michelle and Gurley. He wasn't that kind of guy. Same thing with Dejan Edwards. Certainly with Kendall Milton, he had a huge year for us this year, at least the back half of this year, where he really became the force that we always thought he could be. And, and Kendall did break off some big runs, but again, like you guys know, I mean, you saw it, and it's not like the guys of years past. Well, Trevor Etienne's going to come in and immediately change that, guys. And I know if you line his numbers up with Dejan Edwards' numbers in terms of like yards per carry and, and, and missed tackles forced and all those kind of things, they're actually pretty similar, but you have to factor in the context. 
he was working within the confines of that Florida offense with the Florida offensive line, while Dejan Edwards was working in the context of our offense with our ability to throw the football and with our offensive line. Dejan is awesome. I am not trying to take anything away from him. He's a fantastic player for us. Such a tough dude and so shifty, so quick, and he's broken off some explosive runs for us, but not the way that Trevor Etienne can. Etienne just has that extra gear that I don't think Dejan has. And that's an eye test thing, guys. I'm not using numbers to support that. I'm just saying when I watch the guy play, he has all the shiftiness that Dejan has, the ability to make you miss in the hole, make you miss in space. But I also believe he has that extra gear, that home run gear that I don't think Dejan quite has. And although, again, Dejan Edwards and Etienne's numbers as receivers out of the backfield were almost identical this year, Etienne had 21 receptions for 172 yards this year, while Dejan had 19 receptions for 169 yards. So almost identical numbers. But again, when I watch the guy play, numbers aside, when I watch him play, I see a guy with my my eye test, I see a guy that if put in a different offense with a different coordinator, with different talent around him, a different quarterback, a better quarterback, I think he can be used as a dynamic weapon out of the backfield. And not just the screen game. Yes, the screen game. But I think you can use this guy to actually go out and run routes. I'm not going to go as far and say I think he's got Kenny McIntosh level receiving ability because Kenny was just rare. I mean, he could he could have played receiver for us, guys. I mean, the way he ran routes, the way he caught the ball so effortlessly, I'm not going to say that Etienne is that, but I think he's somewhere between what Dejan Edwards and Kenny McIntosh are in terms of their ability to be a receiver out of the backfield. And that's something, quite honestly, that we just didn't have in our offense this year. And that was a big part of what we did in 2022 and route to a second consecutive national title. That wasn't a part of our offense this year because we didn't have the backs that really gave us what Kenny gave us out of the backfield. We thought it might be Cash Jones, and he did some nice things early in the year, but he was never going to be that guy. Not the way that Kenny McIntosh was. Nothing close to that, right? And I know a lot of people in the Georgia fan base, maybe not a lot of people, there are some people that are, are back on the, the Mike Bobo hate bandwagon and got their pitchforks and torches out and they're on the let's fire Mike Bobo train all over again. I get that. That's always going to happen when we talk about Mike Bobo. He's just a lightning rod when it comes to that kind of thing. But if you think about how good our offense was this year, the numbers that we were able to put up and we did it without having anything remotely close to the threat we had of the backfield in the past game, when that was such a huge weapon for us in 2022, I think Mike Bobo deserves credit for that, for taking what he had on him, the talent he had, all the issues that he had to deal with in terms of injuries and putting that product out in the field and consistently putting up top 10 caliber numbers all year long, well, that's not going to be a problem this year. I believe ETN has the ability to give us maybe not quite what Kenny McIntosh gave us as a receiver of the backfield, but closer to that than what we had from Dejan Edwards or anyone else in our backfield this year. Now, when it comes to ETN, I know the pushback I've gotten on this when I've talked to some of my friends about this off the podcast. Like, well, what you got Branson Robinson. He's not going to be the number one guy. Branson's going to be the number one guy. And yeah, that's probably going to be the case. But I will also say this. There's no guarantee that Branson Robinson is going to be 100% when the season hits. Now, I certainly hope that he is. I have no expectations right now that Branson will be available for spring practice. I don't think that's reasonable. I don't think he will be at all. Fall camp? Yeah, I think he'll probably be ready for fall camp. Will he be 100%? I don't know. I hope so. The kind of injury he's dealing with, guys, it's a pretty complex injury. The recovery takes some time. But even if Branson is back to 100% and he's the guy that we all know that he can be and that he was going to be this year prior to the injuries, this is still the SEC. This is still Georgia football. When's the last time we've had one running back who 
carries the ball 25, 30 times a game. He's just the feature back. We don't have like an Ollie Gordon type guy that we just feed the ball to over and over and over again and gets a breather here and there and you send him right back in. No, that's not what we do. Even if we have a feature back like Branson Robinson, if he does end up being that guy, which yes, I would agree probably will be that guy. Odds on favorite to be that dude. We're still going to share the load. Guys, ETN is a proven commodity in the SEC. As much as I love Branson and as high as I am on his potential and what I believe he can be, he's never really done it in the SEC. He hasn't really had the opportunity. He had a good game against Auburn as a freshman, but didn't play at all last year, right? I mean, ETN two years in a row has been a big time player in the SEC in a bad offense without all that much talent around him. I mean, the dude's averaging six yards a carry in the SEC. You're telling me he's going to come to Athens and give us less than what he what he gave Florida last year? No, that's not going to happen with the offensive line that we have and the quarterback that we have and the receivers that we have. That's just not going to happen. There's too much talent here, and he's going to have opportunities. I think at worst, he's the number two guy. And if that is the case, if he is the number two guy and he's splitting carries to Branson and he, he comes in in the second drive, that's still going to give us, in my opinion, more of an impact on next year's team than any of the other players that we have gotten in the transfer portal to this point. So yeah, that's how I'd rank them, guys. I would say it'd be Trevor Etienne, number one, in terms of the biggest impact next season of this transfer class to this point. Colby Young, two. Humphreys, three. And Xavier McLeod, number four. And man, I went way longer on that one than I thought it would. We went, what, 30 minutes here on that first question? Okay, well... We've got more to get to, but before we do that, I do want to remind you guys one more time about our good friends at my bookie. Guys, time is running out. There's no getting around it. Time is running out on the college football season. It sucks. It's awful. We're going to have to do this long off season. We're going to get through it together because we're not going anywhere. We're going to be here the whole way, guys. We're going to give you your football fix all off season long, but college football, it's, it's almost gone, but it's not quite gone yet. So there's still time for you to go to mybookie.ag, sign up for a brand new account, use our promo code UGA, and you'll get a 50% bonus on your first deposit. And whatever money you make this this bowl season, yeah, you might want to go ahead and cash it out and pay some of those Christmas bills, sure. Or maybe you just want to keep it in there and you have some more cash to hit the ground running next football season, whatever works for you. But you want to make sure you jump in on this deal while you can, guys. We're trying to get my bookie to extend it through college basketball season. We'll see how that goes. But as of right now, all we know is that it goes through the college football season. So again, go to mybookie.ag, use our promo code UGA, and get to betting now. Make some cash. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere, only with my bookie. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, guys, let's get back to this. Let's go to question number two, uh, uh, certainly a, a topical question here. Dennis asked, are we done in the portal? What other needs do you think we have, and who would you like to see fill those needs? I really appreciate the question, Dennis. I don't know how to answer this question because I don't know if our coaches even know, are we done in the portal yet? Because I think a lot of that depends on a couple things. Number one, who else enters the portal from our team that we don't know of yet? And then number two, who else enters the portal from other teams that have yet to do so at this point? I do think we still have some needs. I think we need 
an instant impact defensive lineman. I've been very consistent saying that for the past month or so. We need somebody that can come in next year and be an instant impact game changer on defensive line. Problem is, those guys are hard to find. Walter Nolan's a guy that everyone had their eyes on, right? But he goes to Ole Miss. I mean, Ole Miss is going all in on the NIL front for next season because they think they have a contender and they don't really ever have contenders. So when they got a chance, they're going to go all in. I don't blame them for it. Respect. So that's the issue. It's like, who is that guy going to be? Those guys are hard to find. I mean, typically guys are impact players like that, unless a team blows up like A&M kind of did. They don't leave, right? So it's easier said than done to just go pluck one of those guys from somewhere else. Now, the guy that I still have my eye on, he has not entered the portal to this point, but it's Deion Walker from Kentucky. He was rumored pretty much all season long, especially late in the season, to be a guy that was going to enter the portal after the season. He has not done so yet, but doesn't mean he won't do it at some point because the portal, this portal window actually goes through January 4th. So he still has time after their bowl game. Maybe he's waiting after the bowl game. I don't know. But there's also the post spring window. And then there's the May window. There's a couple more windows where he could enter the portal. And that's what I think we're gonna have to look at here, guys. When we're talking about the defensive line, which I still think is a big need for us. Hopefully a guy like Jordan Hall can take that next step as a sophomore. Hopefully a guy like Jamal Jarrett is ready to be a contributor for us this year in a way that he just wasn't last year. Hopefully those guys, hopefully the answer is from within our program. But we don't know that yet. Do you really want to put all your eggs in that basket? I don't know. So if if one of these potential instant impact difference-making interior defense linemen hits the portal, I think we have to go do whatever we can to get this guy. And if it's Deion Walker, we've got to make that happen. We've got to find a way. Now, again, I don't know if he's going to enter the portal. I don't know. The rumor was he was going to. He hasn't yet. We'll see what happens after their bowl game. But he's the only guy right now, the only name I have right now that can say, I think there's a shot. Now, there might be a surprise somewhere down the line, maybe after the bowl games, maybe after spring practice, maybe in May, who knows? Those things tend to happen. But right now, I don't have a name other than Deion Walker, potentially. But I think we do need another guy there, not just a body. I think we need a dude there. I also would not be shocked to see us try to take a quarterback. I know that sounds weird. Like, why would we do that? Carson Beck is coming back. Who are we going to go get? I'm not saying go get like a top flight guy, McCam Ward S talent. That's not what I'm talking about. But get somebody who is okay sitting and developing for a year, who's in that situation and is fine being a backup this season. Because Kirby, I mean, he, he's made it very clear. Like, ideally, we want four quarterbacks in our quarterback room. We only have three right now. Now, again, don't take somebody just to take somebody. And it's probably going to be hard to find a guy to transfer into our program given the context of what we have in the quarterback room right now and how it sets up with Carson Beck coming back next year. It's going to be really hard. It's a hard sell. But if we can find that guy, sure, take a guy there. But I don't think that's a pressing need. It's just more of like, oh, if we could, that'd be great. I also think you have to consider a safety depending on what happens with Javon Bullard. Now, I, I like some of the guys that we have at that position coming in this class. I like who we have on the, on the roster right now. But they're not known quantities. If you can find a, a guy in the portal that's been there and done that and is a proven player at this level, I think you make a run for him. Again, not saying I don't believe in the young guys that we have. I mean, I love guys like Janelle Aguero, even David Daniel. I mean, Dan Jackson coming back. That's certainly a nice safety blanket there. KJ Bolden, obviously a highly talented player. But do you want to put all your trust in a guy that hasn't done it yet when you could potentially go out and get a guy that has done it at a high level at the college level? Again, not a pressing need. I think it would just be a luxury if we go get a guy like that. And it it would just give you some security in the event that maybe none of the young guys are ready to play at that high of a level, the level of of a Javon Bullard the past couple of years. But again, right now, I don't know who that guy would be, but there's plenty of time for guys to enter the portal. 
All right, next up, Perry asks, a lot has been made of all the guys that Georgia has had hit the transfer portal, but it's been radio silence on NFL declarations. Is that good news this late in the process? Might the dogs be getting some good news when it comes to the draft, or am I reading too much into that? So this is another one of those topical questions, guys, that just wouldn't make sense for us to talk about like two weeks down the road when these declarations have been made one way or the other. And I have touched on this a little bit, but it's been a week or two, so I'll give you guys some updated thoughts on this based off what I've been hearing. I'll give you some leans on this, all right? So here's, uh, I've been pretty consistent saying Amarius Mims is gone. He's a guy I think is gone. Brock is gone. Those are the two guys I'm going to tell you right now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, like they're just gone. They're not coming back. Don't get your hopes up. Those guys are off the NFL and they should go off the NFL. And I'm going to wish them the absolute best of luck. And I'll be pulling hard for both those guys. Oh, and yeah, Kamari Laster, I'd put him in that in that category as well. He's gone. He's going to the NFL. He's probably going to be a first-round draft, but he's in that kind of grade, so he's gone. Bye-bye. Love you, Kamari. Wish you the best of luck, buddy. Now, the next group, I would call them NFL leans. Let's go with that. These are guys that I don't think are locks to go to the NFL draft, but I, if you had to ask me right now, gun to my head, I would lean towards them declaring for the NFL draft sometime either before, slightly before or after the bowl game. So I would go Lad McConkey in this category. I think there's a chance Lad comes back, which we talked about a couple times. I think the way this season ended, dealing with injuries all this year and, and not really having a chance to kind of have that big year that he was hoping to have in his last year. Also, the back injuries or the questions from NFL personnel on, like, is this something that's going to linger? Does he want to have a full healthy year that he can put up and show everybody, hey, I'm fine, my back's all good? Those are things I think he's considering. I still lean towards him going to the NFL because he's not going to get any bigger or faster or stronger. He is what he is from a physical standpoint. So I lean him going to the NFL. And guys, he was strongly considering the NFL prior to this year. And he honestly, we were lucky to get him back this season. So I think he's probably gone, just it's not a done deal. I will put Javon Bullard in that category. I think more likely than not, he's going to go to the NFL, but there's still a chance he can come back. I think the reason he would come back is he wants to put another year of tape at the safety position out there for NFL teams to see. Because if he has a future in the NFL, it's going to be at safety. It's not going to be at star. It's certainly not going to be at corner. So does he want to put more tape out there for coaches and GMs to see. I mean, that's certainly consideration for him. He's only played that position one year, so it's reasonable to think with another year playing that position, he could enhance his draft stock. So not a done deal, but I would still lean towards him declaring for the NFL right now if you put a gun to my head. Now, the guys that I would lean are coming back, or let's just say some of them I know are coming back, Tate Ratledge, Nazir Stackhouse, and Warren Brinson. I feel very strongly that all three of those guys will be back next year. And at this point, honestly, I'm surprised they haven't made their announcement. We'll see when that happens. But based on everything that I am hearing, and I've been hearing consistently for a little while now, expect all three of those guys to come back. And then there's Cedric Van Pran and Zion Logue, who haven't officially come out and said, yes, I'm going to the NFL, but they've accepted invites to, for Cedric Van Pran, it's the Senior Bowl, and I think it's the East-West Shrine Bowl, I want to say, for Zion Logue, one of those postseason bowls where NFL draft guys are going to be. They don't accept those invites to those games unless they're going to the NFL. Even if they haven't officially announced it publicly yet, that's what's going to happen. So they're already gone, in my opinion. All right, next up, let's go to a question from Ethan. Appreciate it, man. Ethan asked, I loved your breakdown of all the players in this signing class last week, but I want to ask, who is your favorite player in this class? I really appreciate the question, Ethan, and what I had planned on doing, what I still plan on doing, is a signing class superlatives episode. I know it probably would have made sense to do that on signing day, but I wanted to break down every single player, and we did that for an hour and a half, and it just didn't really have time to 
to fit in the superlatives. So what we're going to do, my plan right now is to push that off to like the traditional signing day in early February. And we'll come back to this signing class. I don't expect us to sign anyone else, but we'll come back to it because we're going back in the news and we'll, we'll do the superlatives then. And favorite player in this class was going to be one of them, but I'll go ahead since you asked specifically about this one and I'll give you my thoughts on my favorite player in this class. This is a tough one because I, I have a number of players that I really like in this class. And the way I think of favorite player, it's not necessarily the best player, although, although I do think that factors into it to some degree, but it's the player in my mind that I like to watch the most, that I think he's really talented, I like his game, like his background, storyline, all of those things kind of mash together. And I think in this class, for me, for me my favorite player is Joseph Jonah Ajanye. I think this guy is a budding superstar. Now, the only thing that gives me some pause in saying that is the position he plays. He's going to play five tech first. He's a five tech all the way. And that's typically not a glamour position in our defense. Although Trayvon Walker is the exception. He took that position and parlayed that into the number one draft pick in the NFL draft a couple years back. But Joseph Jonah Ajanye, guys, I mean, to call him a freak doesn't do justice to what this guy can do from a physical standpoint. Like his athleticism is off the charts. And to think that he is already as good and dominant as he is after only playing football since he started high school for four years, what that tells me is his best football is clearly ahead of him. And considering how good he is right now, that is a scary thought. I truly believe this guy could have come in and played five tech fours last year as in the 2023 season. I think that highly of him. He's physical. He's put together. He's off the charts athletic. He's 6'4", about 275. He's built. He's powerful. He's strong. He's got incredible quickness. He might have unprecedented explosiveness for us at that position. And I, I include Trayvon Walker in that, guys. And Trayvon, we know what kind of athlete that guy was. That's what got him drafted number one overall. But Joseph Jonah Jonye, man, like he is that level athlete himself. And I'm very excited to see what we do with him. He's the kind of player that, yeah, I think his natural position, his base position is going to be the five tech, but you get in third down situations. You guys know we get exotic on third downs. This is a guy I believe we're going to move inside, get a mashup on guards and in our third down dime packages. And he is going to wreak absolute havoc. I believe this guy is a legitimate game plan killer. I think he has game-changing potential. I truly believe that even though he doesn't play a position that we usually put like game changers at, I think he's a guy that has like 10 sack potential. Like I think double-digit sack potential. Now, in our defense, is he going to get that? I mean, that's that basically never happens. But if we wanted him to and we allowed him to, yeah, he could be that guy. So I just love this guy, man. His story, coming from Nigeria, only playing four years of football, coming into college and just being this good this early. And I think what he could grow and develop into, I am incredibly excited to watch this guy play and grow during his time here in Athens. But with that, let's take one final break here today. I want to remind you guys about our good friends at Alumni Hall. Yes, the holidays have come and gone. I know you've gotten all your Christmas gifts for everyone else, all the loved ones in your life, but now's the time to do a little something for yourself. I know you got some Christmas cash just burning a hole in your pocket. I know you guys do, right? And any self-respecting Georgia fan has got to spend at least some of that money on the newest, latest Georgia gear out there. And there's no better place to do that at than Alumni Hall. They have all the best brands, the best selection. They have things that no one has. They have the best customer service. If you're here in the Athens area, you can stop by in store inside the 
at Spridge Shopping Center. Or if you're not in the Athens area, which I know is a lot of you, no worries. You can just shop online at alumnihall.com. Have the gr same great brand, same great selection, all the best gear, accessories you're going to find anywhere. So treat yourself at Alumni Hall today because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. All right, guys, we've got two more questions here that I want to run through real quick. We've got a question from Roxanne, and I want to stop in and give Roxanne a shout-out here. I'm almost certain that Roxanne is a first-time question asker, maybe a long-time listener. I don't know. But, Roxanne, I want to say welcome to the show. Welcome to our mailbag episode, and I really appreciate the question. It's a good question. Roxanne asks, how likely is it that we keep both Glenn Schumann and Will Muschamp. If I were Schumann, I would not want to share the title of co-defensive coordinator at this point in my career. I feel like it's a little different for Muschamp because he has already served as a head coach. And Roxanne, I do think this is a really good question. It's a fair question. And I've often wondered this myself. So Glenn Schumann is this hot up-and-coming name in college football, almost got the, the Philadelphia Eagles defensive coordinator job last year, was certainly in the running there, was, was interviewing with him at the very least. He is a very highly thought of guy. And it's only a matter of time until he leaves us and takes a, a head coaching job somewhere. I just hope that we can keep him as long as we possibly can. I'm hoping he kind of has the Kirby trajectory where he just stays assistant coach for a, a good long while until he finds the perfect job and he takes that job. So we'll see how it plays out. But I, I get what you're saying. This guy is a hot commodity. He can go basically anywhere else in the country and have the sole defense coordinator title. He wouldn't have to share that with anyone else. But I think when it comes down to it, what Schumann's looking at here is that he's the one that's calling the plays, right? And that's what teams really care about. When they're looking at hiring somebody to be the defense coordinator for the NFL, maybe, or looking to hire a new head coach, they're looking at who is the guy responsible for calling the plays on game day, because that's really who the defense coordinator is. And I know that you had the title for Will Muschamp as co-DC, but there are any number of teams out there that have co-OCs or co-DCs, and they do that as a way to, to give these guys a raise, give them more money, it's a sign of respect. But at the end of the day, it's the guy who's calling the plays who is the de facto coordinator. And I believe Glenn is perfectly okay with that. We have no reason to believe he's not okay with that because he's done it for two years as long as he is the guy that's calling the shots at the end of the day. He doesn't have to share the play-calling duties. And from a Georgia standpoint, one of the reasons you want to have things set up this way on the defensive side of the ball is that in the eventuality that Glenn Schumann does leave Georgia, which is going to happen at some point, guys. Like It's just going to happen. You want to have somebody set to hit the ground running as your next DC if you believe that person is in-house. And clearly, Kirby Smart believes that Will Muschamp can be that guy. And I think that's why he has the title of co-DC. It's a sign of respect, number one. He's been there and done that. As you, as you mentioned, he's been a head coach in the SEC at two different institutions, been a very successful DC at other stops across the country. But in reality, when and if Glenn Schumann does leave, with Muschamp at least sharing some of the responsibilities, not the game day play call, but some of the responsibilities, he'll be more equipped to hit the ground running as the next DC if that is indeed the route that Kirby Smart chooses to go, which if I had to handicap it right now, I would say that's the most likely outcome. Kirby puts a premium on guys that he knows and trusts and guys that have similar philosophies to him and understand our culture and the way we do things. And just like with Mike Bobo, I think Will Muschamp's a natural shoe. I know that it will get a lot of people in the fan base fired up saying it's Kirby just, you know, hiring his best buddies, his drinking buddies from college. And that's fine. You can say what you want, but these guys are highly successful coaches and they're going to continue to do a really, really good job for us. But to your initial question, Roxanne, I don't think Muschamp's going anywhere. I really don't. I think at this point in his career, with the money that he's made, with the money he still gets paid from South Carolina, he's perfectly content to stay in Athens at his alma mater, work for a guy that he trusts, 
They have mutual respect for each other, which is huge. You don't get that everywhere. And Will Muschamp's not dumb. He knows exactly what I just laid out for you. Glenn Schumann is going to take another job somewhere along the way. He'll get a head coaching job, a good head coaching job, eventually. And it might be sooner rather than later. This guy's a a big-time coach, and he's a rising star in the profession, and he is very well-known out there, and he's going to be gone at some point. I would say, you know, I don't have an exact time frame. I would say within three years, he's probably gone. He's still a young coach, but if we continue to win at the rate that we have won and our defenses continue to play at a high level, now this year we take a slight step back, but if we're back right up there again next year, he's going to continue to get interviews for... NFL defense coordinator jobs, and eventually those are they're going to be head coaching jobs at the college level. I think he just has the luxury of being picky right now, like Kirby was. Like, why take a head coaching job just to take a head coaching job? Like, is the Vanderbilt head coaching job, and I'm just throwing a, a random school out there, like, is a, is a school like that, the head coaching job there, really better than the defense coordinator job at Georgia? Is it really? Because if you continue to stay at Georgia as DC, where you're going to have access to all this insane talent year after year after year, and you're going to continue to be very successful as a defense coordinator because you have so much talent, eventually a bigger school that's a much better job they can have far more success at and win at a higher level at, they're going to come calling. And that was the same strategy that Kirby Smart used. That's going to happen for Glenn Schumann eventually. So why just jump at the first job? He's not going to do that. He hasn't done that, and he's not going to do that. He's going to wait for the right job, a job that he thinks he can win big at. And until that happens, I think we keep him. I don't think he's going to take a lateral job elsewhere. I just don't believe that he will. And Will Muschamp, he sees the rag on the wall. He knows that Glenn Schumann eventually will get a, another job, a head coaching job somewhere, an NFL DC job that he likes, whatever. He's going to get one of those jobs eventually and leave. And Will is just sitting there thinking, okay, well, what's in my best interest? Like going and taking a DC job at a lesser school? I don't know if I'll get a a high-level DC job right now. I don't know. So do I want to risk it and go to maybe a lesser school with less talent and maybe my production isn't as good as it has been in years past and I don't have the same caliber of players to work with when I can stay here at Georgia and just bide my time and wait for Schumann to move on and then I slide right in, just like my buddy Mike Bobo did, to that DC job. And also in terms of financials, guys, I mean, Glenn Schumann makes... $2 $2 million a year. When you make $2 million a year at Georgia, you have access to all that talent and you're always going to have a very good, at the least, a very good defense. Why would you jump at just any job? I think he's here until he gets a big time job. And, and Will Muschamp's still getting paid from South Carolina. He's also making about $800,000 himself here in Athens. So that's all a long way to say, Roxanne. I actually believe that we are going to keep both these guys on staff in the same capacity until Schumann gets the job that he wants. That could be one year, could be three years, could be five years. I don't know, but I certainly do not think he's in any hurry to leave. He's still a really young coach with a long future ahead of him. But I think that we are in good shape until a big-time school comes calling as a head coaching opportunity for Schumann. And then finally, Liam has a question about the college playoff and my rooting interest in the college playoff. So if you guys have not listened to our Bowl Picks Part 2 episode, at the end of that episode, we gave our picks for the college playoff and Charlie and I had a discussion about who we were rooting for in the Rose Bowl between Michigan and Alabama. And I said that I just can't bring myself to root for Alabama. And I know there are a lot of Georgia fans that disagree with me and think, okay, SEC, you got to root for Alabama. And so Liam, I think, is one of those guys. I think it's fair to say, Liam, right? So here's what Liam asked. I just listened to your Bowl Picks episode, and I have to ask, as a Georgia fan, how can you possibly be rooting for Michigan over Alabama in the Rose Bowl? Does SEC pride not factor in for you? This is a really good question. It's a fair question, and I'm happy to answer it. But the reality is, my answer is going to be complicated because... I think 
fandom is a complicated thing, especially when it comes to like your rooting interest when it's a game that your team is not actually playing in. I certainly get the idea behind SEC pride. I get it. I really do. I get that a team in the SEC winning the national championship makes the conference look stronger overall, right? And so by extension, your team in that conference also gets a boost from that. Yeah, we might have gone 10-2, and two, but man, that's the best 10-2 and two out there in the country because we play in the SEC. Yeah, we might have lost a couple games, but our losses are better than your losses because we lost the teams in the SEC and it's the best conference in football. I get that mindset, and I also understand how the narrative that it would create that the SEC is the best conference in football, which I believe the SEC is the best conference in football. I think that's really not up for debate. And typically, I kind of just brush aside narratives. It's like, whatever, it doesn't really matter. I think in this case, it does. I think it does have a tangible impact on your team because that narrative is something that bleeds over into recruiting and recruits want to play for the best conference, right? They want to play in the biggest games. It gives the conference cachet. And by extension, again, it gives your program inside that conference a little bit more cachet that you can sell to recruits and you can sell to television partners to get more money out of. And as we've mentioned many times on this show, the Cultural Playoff Committee is full of humans, right? And human beings are prone to being influenced by narratives as we've seen plenty of times, really on a yearly basis with the college football committee. If Washington and Alabama had reversed roles this year and it was Washington who beat the number one team in the country in their conference championship game and Florida State still did what Florida State did, would Washington out of the Pac-12 have jumped Florida State? I do not believe they would have. I think Alabama, number one, being Alabama, and then also being in the SEC, that certainly played a factor in that. So I do get it from that standpoint. And to be entirely honest with you, I do have some SEC pride. I do. But there's a limit to that. I root for teams in the SEC as long as I don't think them winning has any sort of negative impact on our ability to continue to win at a high level. And let me explain this. My number one criteria when I am watching another football game that Georgia is not directly involved in, and I'm trying to decide who am I rooting for in this game? Who do I want to win? The overriding thought that I have in my mind is, what helps Georgia the most? Does team A winning help Georgia the most, or does team B winning help Georgia the most? That is how I look at it. In some games, there really isn't any direct implication to Georgia's fortunes, but there are plenty of other games where the outcome of the game does have an impact on us in some way, shape, or form. So that's how my mind works. That's what I'm thinking. And so when I look at this matchup in the Rose Bowl, Michigan and Alabama, how in the world does Alabama winning this game help Georgia? Now, I know the thought process is, okay, well, Alabama's just already won so many national titles. They're already at this elevated state in the college football landscape that then winning another one's not really going to make that much of a difference. It's just ho-hum. Alabama just won another national title. That's kind of what happens, right? Whereas Michigan, if they win a national title, maybe that gives them more cachet on the recruiting trail, gives them more national attention. Maybe that gives the Big Ten more national attention, and that might take away a little bit from Georgia. Maybe. I, I guess a little. there's a little truth to that, maybe. But to me, Alabama winning another national title is far more damaging to Georgia's chances of winning more national titles in the future than Michigan winning the national title this year would be. That's just the way I look at it. Now, I'm not saying if Alabama wins, that means well, Georgia can't win another national title. That's No, of course that's not true. I just think it might become a little harder because Alabama would then have another national title to sell the recruiting trail. And all this talk of Georgia taking over the SEC over the past couple of years, well, that'd be thrown away because here's Alabama. They're back on top again. 
Alabama is just far more of a direct competitor to Georgia than Michigan is or Washington is. And even Texas. Now, Texas coming to the SEC will certainly be, I mean, as soon as next year, a direct competitor with Georgia, but still Alabama is more of a direct competitor because of the of the geography, of the reality that they recruit more of the same areas that we do than even Texas does. Now, Texas coming to the SEC is going to recruit more in the SEC footprint than they have in the years past, but but we don't tend to fight for Georgia kids with Texas nearly as much as we do with Alabama. So at the end of the day, I just don't see how Alabama winning another national championship helps Georgia. In fact, if anything, I think if Alabama wins another national title this year, it hurts Georgia. So how as a Georgia fan can I root for something I think actually is going to hurt Georgia more than the alternative outcome of Michigan winning the national title. But back to the idea of SEC pride and what's good for Georgia, let's take the Cotton Bowl, for example, Ohio State and Missouri. I do not view Missouri as a direct competitor. I know they're in the SEC, so in some regard, yes, they are. But Missouri is not on our level. I guess that's the way I would phrase it. They're not on our level. Yes, they gave us a good game the past couple years, but they're not on our level. They're not really competing for national titles. Alabama is. So Missouri winning the Cotton Bowl is not going to give them a boost to the point that they're going to now start taking recruits away from us. I know, okay, they got Williams Noary. Okay, well, that's one guy from the state of Missouri. I guess you can throw in Luther Burns. So two guys in the past, what, like 20 years that Missouri's taken from us that we really, really wanted? Well, how many has Alabama taken from us that we really, really wanted? If Missouri wins the Cotton Bowl, I think that helps the SEC, and then by extension makes us look stronger, and then Missouri win that game doesn't really, in my opinion, have much of a tangible impact on our ability to win national championships moving forward the way that Alabama winning another national title would. I would say the same thing with Ole Miss and Penn State in the Peach Bowl. I will absolutely be rooting for Ole Miss in that game because I think them winning that game will be a shot in the arm for the SEC. I have some SEC pride there. I think that helps us in in some regard. And then Ole Miss, although I do think they're going to be very good next year, they've gone all in with NIL and the transfer portal this offseason. They're going to be a contender and we have to go to Oxford next year. But all things being equal on a year in, year out basis, Ole Miss is not on Georgia's level and they're typically almost every year not going to be competing for national titles. And it's extraordinarily rare that Ole Miss would take a recruit from Georgia. That just doesn't happen. And even if they beat Penn State in the Peach Bowl, that's not going to change it. That's not going to have any sort of radical effect on their recruiting efforts and their ability to go in and take guys out of state of Georgia and beat us for prospects. So in short, I do think that Missouri and Ole Miss winning those bowl games later this week is actually good for Georgia, at least in some small way. Whereas Alabama winning national title, I do not think is good for Georgia. That's really how I look at it. And then the other side of this is, I just don't like Alabama fans. I just don't, guys. I mean, we're not around them all that much. But look, I don't really like fans of any other fan base. But Alabama, they're not the worst. But I also really don't like them. And after experiencing what I experienced in Atlanta in the SEC Championship game, that is the most fresh bad taste I have in my mouth and the way their fans acted. Yeah, I'm just holding a grudge. I don't want them to win. I don't want them to have that feeling. I don't want them to have that success. And this is not a Nick Saban thing. I actually have no issue with Nick Saban at all. I actually have a lot of respect for Nick Saban. I, dare I say, kind of like Nick Saban. I kind of always have. I've had a lot of respect for this guy. I think he's done a lot of good in his career. I think he's deep down a good dude. So it has nothing to do with Nick Saban. I'm not actively rooting against that guy. I'm rooting against... Alabama fans. That's really what it comes down to because if you look at Alabama fans versus Michigan fans, I'm not saying Michigan fans are great, but the reality is I don't really interact with Michigan fans. I interact with Alabama fans far more than I would with Michigan fans. So if Michigan fans, if Michigan wins and their fans 
act, you know, all pompous and holier than thou and, 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 and go crazy. Fine, whatever. Like, you're not in my face. I don't have to deal with you. Alabama fans are going to be far more in my face. I have to deal with that far more than I would Michigan fans winning. So that's another aspect to it as well for me. Now, the whole Jim Harbaugh thing and the Michigan cheating thing, that does make it really hard to stomach. And that's why I said on the picks episode, like, I just don't want anyone to win this football game. I mean, Michigan, with the way they have just so clearly cheated and so clearly bent the rules in so many different ways, really the entirety of the time that Jim Harbaugh has been in Ann Arbor, it is rather disgusting to potentially see that be rewarded and no one really doing anything about it and just kind of turn the other cheek and say, oh, let's just act like it's all good and nothing went wrong. And yeah, they, they deserve to win this national title. Like, yeah, I definitely have a problem with that. And that's why I'm torn. But again, I just come back to it. My number one factor when I'm determining my rooting interest is what is best for Georgia. And I don't think there's really any good outcome for Georgia in this game, but I think it's a less terrible outcome if Michigan wins, if that makes any sense. So that's just kind of how my mind works. And I'm not saying I'm right. That's just where my head is. And you guys, of course, can root for whoever you want, and I won't begrudge you for it. I just cannot bring myself to root for Alabama in this college football playoff. I just can't. All right, guys, that does it for me today here on the Glory UGA podcast. I will be back later this week with one final episode to preview the Orange Bowl. I know that um, Florida State's got players dropping like flies left and right, man. And um, as you guys heard me say on the Picks episode, if you've already listened to that, if you haven't, check it out. Even before all these, a lot of these names hit the portal and Tate Rodemaker, who was the backup quarterback who was going to start for them, even before he declared for the portal, I thought we were going to murder Florida State, and I even more so think that now. But I'm going to dive into the matchups and what's going on in this Orange Bowl, so make sure to check back for that later this week. We'll get you covered for all things Orange Bowl related. But for now, I'm out of here. I'm Tyler. Thanks for being here, guys. And as always, go dogs.